No one gets to pick yakety sacks. In honor of Aloha, what's a great pop music cue from a comedy? I'm Katie Rich, and shout out to our namesake, the use of we'll meet again at the end of Dr. Strangelove. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven. Mike Judge has been overusing this trope on Silicon Valley for the credits, but nerds contrasted against good hip-hop worked really well with Office Space's printer-killing Ghetto Boys song, Still. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with the champs tequila. And before the podcast, Dave wondered, what, from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? No! And then Katie wondered, oh, from The Sandlot? No! From 1985's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, of course, Uh... as he dances across the bar. Fools. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with You Make My Dreams by Hall & Oates in 500 Days of Summer? No! Patches! In (laughs) the greatest movie ever made, Step Brothers, because right when they say, did we just become best friends? Yep, and they drop the beginning of that song. It's like the audience is conditioned to expect it. It's so perfect. It's it's the greatest. No! No, Step Brothers is the perfect movie. Oh, yes. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 72 for Tuesday, May 26, 2015. It's the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Mitt Brown, and a happy Memorial Day, everybody. Before we get started, we have a review that someone tried to gloss over last time, and it is now time to do penance. We do, by Jeff underscore Fred, who wrote this review, and then uh, we didn't read it last week, and... He apparently cleaned it up a little bit, and so now we're going to read it. Uh, not that second it was, pass. This not that it was. Not that it was yeah, not too... that we skipped it for quality before. Right? No, not at not at all. <laughs> we but, took our uh, red pen to it, and we said no, no, no. <laughs> Regardless, notes. he did do a second pass, and so here we are. Uh, Jeff Fred says, "I found this podcast through Katie Rich and the Film Experience, and it's pretty friggin' great." Okay. In, the, in the beginning, I hated David Ehrlich, Tokyo Drift, and Transformers oh. Three as his favorites in the series. Really? Also, Mission Impossible Three comes up way more than you'd expect. Side note, Jeff Red, I watched it again this morning on TV, and it's even better than I remember. That's because it's a perfect TV movie. It's just a perfect movie, full stop. Maybe he has a thing for third movies and long-running franchises. I don't know. Anyways, he grows on you and wins a lot of points for his Kingsman and Dancer in the Dark Love. Also, he's not afraid to say when he flat-out hates something. The reason this podcast works so well, though, is because of the chemistry between all the hosts. They all serve a purpose, and the review episodes are way more in-depth than you would ever expect. Even though they can seem sour on a lot of movies they review, you can tell that they generally love movies and want them to be good. I love that they take turns picking topics, and since they come from diverse points of view, the show never gets stale. I started listening to the older episodes on their website, and they're pretty great. Great job, guys. Thank you, Jeff Fred. This is a great review. I can't believe we didn't read it the first time. Thank you. 
So earlier this week uh, was the 38th anniversary of the original Star Wars film. Uh, this segment has absolutely nothing to do with that. I didn't realize it when I told people what we would be talking about today. Um, this is inspired by me yelling like a drunk madman at people a few days ago. It's something that's been on my mind since I've been revisiting the Star Wars movies in anticipation of this new one. As people know, I'm avoiding everything that has to do with J.J. Abrams' seventh Star Wars movie. So I've been kind of indulging in the old discs, in the old, in the old films. Uh, I call them discs. I guess that's a sad state of affairs. But <laughs> um, Tron of you. Yes, I've been going to the game grid and experiencing <laughs> Star Wars films on Blu-ray. Um, and I'm enjoying the heck out of it. I'm really becoming like re-addicted to the world of Star Wars and the wonders of Wikipedia and that kind of nerd shit. Um, Wikipedia, I, is that when like someone makes unwanted sexual contact with the wiki? At Comic-Con specifically. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah. So, why, why am I talking about Star Wars right now? Because I got in a drunken argument with people, and I was doing a little trolling the other night, and I thought Dave would have a lot of feelings about this. But I'm here to proclaim um, that The Phantom Menace, the first of George Lucas's prequels, arrived in 1999, is actually a better movie than Return of the Jedi uh, Star Wars Episode Four, released in 1983, uh, you know, the final installment of the original trilogy, the, the original trilogy being on a pedestal and the prequel trilogy being down your toilet ages ago, uh, accidentally bubbling up whenever someone talks about the complete six film saga. Dave, what do you think? Or do I have to explain myself? <laughs> well, I mean, you might need to explain yourself. You could, bit. you could explain yourself, but I do think before we get What's into your gut reaction to my statement first. Be- well, before we get into like a actual breakdown of these two movies against each other, it now seems like the perfect time to bring up this thing that I've been meaning to write about for like months. But I want to do like some sort of video edit, and I've been talking to this guy online. If you guys go to StarWarsRingTheory.com, it's the um, theory that if you take all six Star Wars movies, Phantom Menace and Return of the Jedi are sort of echoes of each other, or the middle ones are echoes of each other, and Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope are sort of echoes of each other in building this sort of like ring mythological structure. But uh, that's interesting that you paired these two movies because hey. their opening sequences are surprisingly similar visually and then both include a climactic space battle that involve flying inside another thing to mm. bypass it. Do you think shield. you could do me a favor, Dave, while you're on that website and take everyone who writes it and shoot them into the sun? <laughs> Wow. This is coming from David, who it should be known that he does own the Blu-ray, the Star Wars Blu-ray. Unopened, mind you. <laughs> I want everyone to know this. He bought them first. They thing. were for sale on Amazon. Okay. What are you going to do? You're an archivist at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, let me explain why the, the Phantom Menace is better than Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi was the movie that I watched the most as a kid, as opposed to the original Star Wars, which was maybe probably a little too broad, a little too cheesy for me as, as a youngster. Learn to appreciate that. I, I do think it's the best Star Wars movie of the current six. Uh, Empire Strikes Back, way too adult for me. Didn't really have a lot of replay value after I watched it the first time. Return of the Jedi was like a cartoon. Um, really silly, lots of extravagant set pieces and places. You know, they go to Jabba's Palace, then they go back to Dagobah, then they go to fucking Endor with the Ewoks. And I didn't think the Ewoks were cute. I just fucking thought, Endor with the Ewoks. Fucking Ewoks. <laughs> and then they get, you know, they have the gigantic space battle at the end, all this parallel action Luke versus Vader versus the Emperor. Oh my God, there's so much drama. It's so colorful. It's so crazy. I loved it. Here's I watched the it all the time as a kid. After he cuts off Vader's arm at the end of the second one, we still don't know really much about Vader, really, uh, even down to gender. 
um, the voice could be some sort of space age. Well, I think father. He does say, "I am your father." No, no, father could be a you know. You know what? I'm going to shoot you into the sun. And and maybe two sons of Tatooine. Cut two. He is Imperator Furiosa. You don't even need all the other movies. Mm, Yep. Wow. Wow. I'm going to go buy the domain. uh, Furiosa Vader dot nerd. Norg. Nerd Norg is now. And then I'm going to book my one way ticket to the sun. <laughs> That's actually the Czech Republic's URL, Nerd Norg, for some. I don't know. I'll I guess my, my question would be what is more enjoyable sure. about Jedi that, or about Phantom I'm ready, I'm ready to feel this question. I'm finally ready to come to terms with the fact that childhood me loved Return of the Jedi, and then adult me has realized that the far goofier, far more offensive. Um, far more inert Phantom Menace is a more enjoyable experience for me. And I actually, I, this dawned on me after we all talked. David confronted me. He hates when we talk nerd ass shit as a phrase and what that means. And if there, and I tried to explain here that there could be visceral pleasure in just seeing the audacity of putting a movie together and put stuffing a movie full of things and and images and ideas and to go to that crazy place with the movie that can that can be true entertainment value. And I think when I put Phantom Menace next to Return of the Jedi. Phantom Menace is so ludicrous at times. From the beginning, like, how, how dumb do you have to be to have such a, an elaborate political scheme at the beginning of your movie to be so dense with stuff that just doesn't matter? You know, what is Lucas up to with this film? You know, he's making a comeback here. He, has, he hasn't written and directed a film since Star Wars 77, I believe. He's only been a producer on all these other movies. Obviously, he's been the the driving force of them. But this is his comeback. This is pure him. Um, And I find that really fascinating because Return of the Jedi, for all its ingenuity in terms of, we need a new place to set the action. All right, we haven't done forest yet, so the end of this movie is going to be in a forest. Um, Phantom Menace just takes us all over this crazy universe, back to Tatooine, obviously, um, but stuffs in... Lucas's love for, for drag racing, we have the pod racing, which is a really exhilarating scene. Um, we get to play up the Jedi powers for the first time. We get to see this be a dynamic um, saber fighting art uh, as opposed to these kind of menacing standoffs, which are, are great dramatically. Um, but technology has now allowed Star Wars to open up. And I think Phantom Menace is the, the middle ground between just an implosion of this technology in, in Revenge of the Sith, which is just, it's too much. He wants all the power, like all the sound and imagery on screen at once. Here, it's a middle ground uh, because it's still shot on film. It looks like a film. It, and now it, but it has Jar Jar Binks, who he is an elaborate creation of CG. He's totally offensive. You know, how can you possibly be so blind to your own uh, in her racism, you know, George Lucas has a black wife. We, let's all keep that in mind when he creates Jar Jar Binks and does these horrible racist. Yes, let's tokenize obacks. his wife. That's a great thing to keep in mind. Although I just don't understand like how this man could do this, and and that's I'm just well, like Watto's in that movie I'm, too, which is deeply right. offensive. Uh, and so my jaw's on the floor throughout Phantom Menace for so many different reasons. And I rewatched Return of the Jedi and just didn't have the pleasure I did as a kid of just – I wasn't in all Jabba's Palace is a really boring, long sequence where nothing happens. Um, and, then, and then five minutes of the Sarlacc pit set piece. 
the middle chunk again going back to Dagobah it's a lot of like prophecy boring ass shit and and then you go to this final parallel action stuff where okay. you know, not a lot I'm ready, I'm ready to go to give you this patches <laughs> um, and I say this is someone who clearly much more deeply invested in uh, this argument than anyone else Obviously. on the planet um, I think that if the Phantom Menace had been done with the physical production the practical production values of Return of the Jedi that I could be a little bit more amenable to this argument. I think so much of what loses me about The Phantom Menace is that uh, weightless uh, feeling that is done by that archaic CG. Um, and that, you know, Jar Jar Binks can be wrapped up in that. But I think really the cities, um, the whole world, uh, it, it does pay off in spades in the pod race. But other than that, I really feel like that movie, you could just run your hand right through it and you wouldn't feel a thing. Um, I think that that's a big part of why intrinsically on, on, a, on a, you know, subatomic level, I could never hold Phantom Menace up to, to the same regard, such as it is, that I hold uh, Return of the Jedi. But, but I also, and I wrote this uh, on on Star Wars Day proper, May 4th. But I really do think that after the original trilogy and the introduction of these prequel films, that the Star Wars universe became almost as much about like reading uh, an encyclopedia, reading the Wikipedia, uh, as, it is, as it was about being individual movies or telling an arc of a story. Star Wars 7 may abolish that feeling uh, in me, but like I'm really all about just how much stuff can be in these movies because... The, the the foundation is so flexible. Anything can happen. But Dave, what do you think? Uh, and well, Katie, because I want to know. Yeah, Katie, I want to see if Katie because Katie hasn't seen Return of the Jedi in uh, how I, long? Yeah, I saw the Return of the Jedi right before I saw uh, the Revenge of the Sith. What was the last time? What was that? The last one? That was ten Sith? years ago. Just ten years ago. Week. Yeah, ten years ago. So that was the last time I saw Return of the Jedi. Uh, but what it sounds to me is that the Phantom Menace ruined Return of the Jedi for you, like. It's badness made you look back at a movie you used to like and say, oh, this is so much like this other bad movie that I can't like it anymore. But not even like I just saw Phantom Menace reaching for more. Like I saw it digging its hands into technology and crazy prequelization story techniques. And I saw Return of the Jedi then kind of doing nothing to really push the story forward. What Katie's alluding to is that the same thing – It's what's confusing to me at least is that the same thing you're praising – Phantom Menace for you would have praised Return of the Jedi for and Return of the Jedi came out. For what it was doing that was ambitious for the time. It's like, well, Maybe. Yeah, instead of doing a Wookiee planet, they made up a whole other, like, cannibalistic teddy bear species. And, like, instead of, like, that crappy run on the Death Star that had, like, six miniatures, now we have a full run on the Death Star with Admiral Akbar and all that stuff. Like, there's a lot in Return of the Jedi. Oh, yeah. It's, it's kooky. There's so I, much I, in Return of the Jedi. I should say Return of the Jedi is a good, I mean, totally watchable movie. Oh, yeah. And in terms of what happens in it, I mean, the only reason that I would disagree with you, because I think that they're both similarly constructed movies about when they lose track of their heroes, would be that because Return of the Jedi is a part three, we have heroes that we care about, even though the movie doesn't do a lot to support them. Like, nobody's favorite Anakin Skywalker is baby Anakin Skywalker. And nobody's favorite Obi-Wan Kenobi is... Oh, you don't like Jake Lloyd? Pa- you don't like, uh... No. You look like an angel? I'm just, oh. I'm just saying nobody's favorite, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi is Padawan Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, that movie has, you know, Darth Maul, which everybody loves and was probably a good move. But outside of that, it doesn't have a lot of characters that stuck around. Qui-Gon, man. Qui-Gon everybody moves. loves Darth Maul? Yeah. Everybody, everybody loved him Darth when Maul. he was on the McDonald's cup. Hi, Adi, the movie came out. I was there's, recently. He's not, a, 
Denver Comic Con, and you'd be surprised how many whatever his species is variants there are because he came back in Clone Wars and everything. I hope I hope for Kylo Ren or whatever he's like, let's just give him a cool red lightsaber and that the rest of the character will take care of itself. That's basically what Darth Maul was, but now he has backstory because the prequels, like what Patches is saying, the prequels are like Game of Thrones where it's like more a history than a thematic like musing. Like, the prequels are like, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Also, the Emperor could come about, and Darth Vader could happen. And it's really interesting if you start viewing it that way, because then you start caring about Clone War battles, and then you start realizing there were all these characters in between the actual movies. But I suppose that's a topic for another Star Wars day. Just just to wrap up, you know, touching on what you said, Dave, I probably would feel the same exact way if Return of the Jedi was in a vacuum. Um, and, I, and I did when I saw it as a kid, when I was watching it on a laser disc, go back to the discs. Wow. Um, that's what, just had a laser disc? No. Our, our, we had family friends who lived in a very fancy house. It was amazing. Like, they had a little home theater. And I, I definitely watched all those movies for the first time on laser disc, and it was awesome. Um, and it was very privileged. I'll check it later. But um, Hi, We have to shut down the turn disc over. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Actually, you got you got through Java's Palace and then you had to turn the disc over. They were wise. Um, but I, I, I did want to say that I think Return of the Jedi is the movie where Lucas starts hitting a wall with what he's actually able to do. And you hear it on the commentaries on the Blu-ray. It's like, uh, you know, the Jabba puppet can only do so much. Or, you know, if we're going to do a lightsaber battle, we can only do so much. The, the end space battle is still incredible. But uh, he was kind of reaching at that point, you know, settling for a forest planet to... to kind of drive the action forward and make it different than his first two movies. He was running out of things to do uh, and had to wrap up his story. And there's not enough movie in Return of the Jedi. Uh, whereas there's probably too much movie in Phantom Menace. There's a whole saga kind of stuffed in at the beginning of that film that people wish they could see play over three movies. Uh, and I think it works to its advantage. I am prepared for angry tweets. Bring it on and I'll troll hopefully more in writing later. So thank you all for this. So for, for the past week, uh, we've been hearing words from the Cannes Film Festival. I don't know if people, if you, if listeners follow people who've been tweeting about Cannes or know people who've been out there. Katie, you've, you, Vanity Fair has run some Cannes Film Festival coverage. Yeah, David, I've been editing a lot of Cannes reviews. You've seen some movies. You got to see Woody Allen's film, uh, Cannes Review. Wrote three reviews without leaving Brooklyn. Or uh, yeah, who, needs, who needs France when you've got... <laughs> Beautiful all, of the, all of the movie watching of Cannes with none of the scenery or parties. Some, somehow Brooklyn, <laughs> none uh, of the lines. At the end of May, was still fifty degrees, so that kind of mm. kind of blew. Anyway, point is, we've been reading a lot about Cannes, and it's a hard thing to connect to because we haven't seen any of these movies, and a lot of them come from foreign directors who some people might not be too familiar with. Um, while we don't want to go too far into this, as David noted before our podcast, you know we don't want to talk too much about movies that aren't out yet, but I do wonder if anything kind of cut through the chatter and, it's, and became a movie 
you know, must see when this kind of sneaks into theaters because some of these movies are coming out from IFC, coming out from even smaller distributors. Uh, what do people need to see or at least should consider uh, keeping on their radar so that when it sneaks into theaters, they see it? David, Can I, can first. I monologue for a moment? Yes, um, go. All right. So the first thing just to get out of the way is that this movie by Jacques Adiard, Dipan, that pretty much nobody really cared for. Well, won the Palme d'Or. Won the Jordan Hoffman liked it. Exactly. You um, read about it at VanityFair.com. I wouldn't recommend that. I'm just kidding. Read all of Jordan's coverage. It's great. It's like you're there. You can taste the mediocre films that win the Palme d'Or. Shut up. <laughs> um, but no, I haven't seen it. And Jacques Adiard, who made A Profit, and my personal favorite of his, the beat that has, the beat that uh, the beat that his heart skipped. The beat, beat that the beat that my heart skipped. The beat that my heart skipped. I forgot my pronoun. Um, <laughs> is a really interesting filmmaker, and I'll definitely check it out. But that the, the movie does seem a little milk toast from what I could understand. My the movies that got me most excited from what I read are you know for the most part the movies that had me most excited uh, before the festival, which are the Ho Shao Shen film The Assassin, which is his first film uh, in a long time since the flight of the Red Balloon, and it's a very slow apparently and a little bit opaque uh, Wu Sha epic starring Shu Qi that is apparently just absolutely gorgeous. Um, and also, of course, Todd Haynes's Carol with uh, Rooney Mara, who won the Best Actress Prize, and Kate Blanchett, um, which sounds, uh, you can pretty much picture what that movie's going to look like in your head um, if you read anything about it, but it sounds phenomenal. Um, and The Lobster, the Yorgos Lanthimos film, uh, who made Alps. And uh, he made Dogtooth, and his new film has a lot of English-speaking actors and is set in a future, an alternate world, whatever, uh, where it is illegal to be single. And if you are single, I believe they turn you into an animal of some kind. I'm not entirely sure of the details, and frankly, that's just how I like it. You get to pick what animal you are. Okay. Um, And I'm assuming maybe someone or no one chooses the lobster. I don't know. But uh, and the last film um, I'll shout out to that I haven't seen is uh, um, Arabian Nights by uh, Gomes, who might Miguel Gomez Gomes, however you pronounce it, uh, which is a six-hour, three-part experience from um, the guy. My, my memory is failing me all over the place. What was the I really taboo? He made taboo uh, that I really loved. Um, anyway, and then I've actually seen three movies, but why talk about those? So you guys, yay! Katie? Um, real quick. Uh, so I've been editing Richard Lawson's reviews at Vanity Fair, so I've been reading about them. And then this movie, Mountains May Depart, which is by oh. a Chinese filmmaker whose name I do not dare pronounce. Thank you. Uh, sounds fascinating because it's kind of a it's a three part film about various generations in China and it makes me realize how little I know about contemporary Chinese cinema, contemporary China in general, and it sounds kind of a little bit melodramatic, a little bit human focused, which you know an interesting uh, entry point for me as someone who knows very little about China to kind of learn about what's going on there. So that's something I'd be interested to see when and if it makes its way my way. Oh, uh, well, Kino Lorber bought it. It'll be at the New York Film Festival for sure, and the probably. Later this uh, all year. All of our, uh, the rest of the country. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. The rest of you guys are screwed. Move to New York or watch it on iTunes. Oh, next my year. God. Josh, one of our reviews uh, recently was grilling us for being too New York centric. So telling people to screw you and move to New York. <laughs> good way. Great way to keep get excited. Dave, what about you? Uh, David mentioned a lot of the things that I would mention. So I guess I'm going to throw out uh, I hear that uh, Tim Roth plays a home care nurse in this movie named Chronic from a Mexican director. 
and just uh, reviews of his performance thus far seems like if I can sit through a movie that meditated on death, it might be something worth picking up for an actor that I mostly remember for being in The Incredible Hulk and The Bad Planet of the Apes. So, meditated on death? Famous actor. What about The Sea of Trees from Gus mm. Fentz? Hey. How, are the, how are the reviews for that one? Oh, I think they are awful. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, Jordan go. Hoffman, he wrote that one for Esquire, so I'll give him that. Um, yeah, and, and just to wrap up, I mean, all of these films. I, I, Katie, I thought you might mention Carol for some reason. I thought that was. Well, David mentioned Carol. I'm also intrigued by that one, but that's. Who's not like intrigued a, by Carol? Um, yeah. Well, I, I, David, did you mention Son of Saul? I'm very interested. No, I didn't. No, I left that for you. Oh, well, thank you. That's uh, from Laszlo Nemes, and uh, it's it's a feel-good uh, Holocaust <laughs> drama. But you know what? I keep reading reviews and reactions to this movie. People are just in awe of you know being able to pull off you know a Holocaust movie after how many have we had and and how many angles can but we But you take? should clarify it's not it's he's joking about it being a feel good film. I mean we have had those. It's not like that, that's true. Not one <laughs> it is a very very sad movie from all reports and I'm ready for like I want that. I I anticipate the fall and winter season in some ways so that I can feel sadness. Is that weird that I just want to feel like who I just doesn't want to be struck? I want to be a little piece of the Holocaust every Christmas exactly. Oh, yeah. I want to relive it. Um, so I'm very much anticipating uh, Son of Saul, and I am. I have to give a shout out to Macbeth, the movie that played at the end of the festival <laughs> that I thought was going to be bad because it was playing at the end of the festival, and I hadn't heard anything about it from uh, Justin Curzel, who did Snowtown or Snowtown Murders, I think, is released in the U.S. And apparently, uh, all accounts say it's uh, pretty hardly awesome. all accounts. Wait, 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 wait. Really? <laughs> I seen, I've yeah, no. Most of the reviews I read said that, like, there's the playlist was like it's the most intense cinematic adaptation ever. Oh, I was not Shakespeare, I was about which you can throw of, out. Wait, was this because, the Fassbender Macbeth? Or maybe the film, yeah, the and it's good. Like, I don't. I don't. It's possible. I don't. I, Someone, I also saw mention of some reviews saying no, but good. even Michael Fassbender was like thrown a blood. You guys thrown a blood. Um, anyway, hey, uh, isn't that He's going to direct the Assassin's Creed movie. For we have literally <laughs> centuries of adaptations of Macbeth. I feel like there's room for both. I, I heard that this, this, the, the reactions to this were uh, across the board. But I, that, of all the films that played at Cannes, that'd be pretty low on the list of things I'm excited about. But hey, Patch is excited about it. We'll all see it. We'll all see. <laughs> that's that's the year I, ahead uh, to it. anticipate some different types of films and uh, put them on your put them on your calendar. Put them on your to do list. Put, put them on, on your iCal. Is it, what do people use to like take out your stuff they want to see? Oh yeah, your <laughs> Google all the movies we mentioned. Find the release dates. Rent an <laughs> apartment in New York. Yeah, <laughs> rent an apartment <laughs> in New York. If you come out for the New York Film Festival, uh, you'll actually get a chance to capture. You can stay catch. on David's couch. Actually, you can stay on my couch. Um, you actually, I would love to host people. There's physically not enough room in my apartment, but you can definitely stay on uh, Katie's couch. Her apartment. Oh, thanks. It's a great couch. <laughs> um, so stay on Katie's couch. And you'll see all these movies. We'll see yeah. you there. You can get up and go see the early Saturday morning screenings, and I'll have bagels for you when your Aww. night's over.
Uh, so for second three, I, want, I wanted to go back to a movie that, well, it didn't do too well back <laughs> over this you week. Not that back anyone thought it would have done well. Yes. Well, I guess so. I, I thought it might sneak in there. Disney's on a roll, right? Well, not anymore. Tomorrowland, kind of a bomb. Uh, for for who knows why it didn't connect with audiences. Wait, they didn't even go to see it. So listen to our review; you'll know why it didn't connect with audiences. Well, no, that that's not why it didn't connect with audience. They had to go see the movie for it to not work for them the way it didn't work for us. They couldn't even sell the people the movie, and probably because it's a jumbled movie with so many ideas, so much crammed into it, too many movies into one package that you know you can't sell the damn thing. But I will say this: it has some interesting ideas or at least one that i've been pondering since since we saw tomorrowland which was you know towards the end of the movie hugh laurie goes on this bleeding heart liberal rant about everything that's wrong with the world we're not dreaming enough we're not trying to fix our problems and you know just to rub mud in the eyes of this problem we are indulging in disaster we love disaster movies we love dystopian fiction um, why, why would we see these movies? Because it makes us complacent. We enjoy it so that we don't have to fix our problems. And with uh, San Andreas coming out. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> You're laughing because I can't pronounce San Andreas, but I think I got it right. No, I, I don't even know why. San Andreas, I think. San, on, San Andreas coming out this weekend. Uh, I, I, it made me think, like, maybe, maybe we do. I, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, and I'm curious what you guys think about disaster movie culture. Is there something inherent with why we find entertainment value in them at all? Um, we love the spectacle of destruction. What does that mean about people? And we've had a long history of disaster movies. You know, going back from the beginning of, of film, you know, the 20s and 30s were confronting the Great Chicago Fire, a San Francisco earthquake with movies that were kind of mimicking that with special effects and all through the 50s, 60s and 70s were different types of disaster movies until they grew into what we know today and I wonder if they reflect the times at all, if they're completely void of theme or if they're inherently thematic, if they're about something every time someone makes a disaster movie if it has to be and to kind of kick it off uh and be the devil's advocate here i will say that recently uh, chile had a volcano erupt and it was completely unexpected and they weren't sure how big it was going to be how disastrous i i personally actually i have not followed up enough to, to truly know what impact it had and i should look Did more it take pierce brosnan from us is that where you're going with no this? that's not where i'm going the good joke people may have died um no, but that's joke. the if, if that's Wait, the on, line we can't tread here. Let him finish like, the okay, chili okay, thing because okay. I, if our, our listeners or anything like me, are very interested to see how he's oh, okay. bring this full circle. Right. When this, when the Kabuku volcano exploded, um, a lot of articles were were designed around. So how do we write about this if we don't have on the ground reporting, or if we're not a website or a news outlet that has any idea what to do with this kind of tragic event? Well. It's pretty fucking amazing, you know, seeing a volcano explode and seeing the lightning clouds that surround, surround it when it does. I mean, that's a nightmarish vision, but it's so stunning, uh, photographically speaking. Um, so you have this tragic event, but a lot of the ways people cover it is through these incredible photographs of the event. And we're in awe. We love it. Uh, but that's kind of weird. It's, it's well, a little weird to stand back from that. And I think that's built into 
disaster movies. And so this all comes around to Tomorrowland. I will say very short and sweet that I just think that the itch to make dystopian fiction is from uh, having a sort of tabula, tabula rasa primitivism. It's saying, like, let's engage with human beings, uh, primitive, uh, most feral Sort That's of certainly the Mad Max and, George Miller right. and and also you know rather than going back to the Stone Age every time and like you know Kazuo Ishiguro's new novel The Fairy Giant does uh, which has been on my mind um, they to go forward into the sort of well not even dystopian but post apocalyptic would be the more appropriate word here um, that they are able to sort of rewrite the rules for themselves and flex them in a way that stresses the elements of human nature that they're most keen to explore so I think I can understand the appeal. But, but that's yeah, not but really what San Andreas is. Yeah, yeah. Well, well it's San Andreas is Tomorrowland I don't, seems to take aim at. But Sa- Tomorrowland, I mean, I don't know how literally we want to keep it, but the Tomorrowland has these billboards in the movie that are sort of mocking um, other blockbusters that are really geared towards uh, not something like San Andreas, which is about sort of contemporary and imminent destruction, but about these wastelands, these unrecognizable hellos, a lot closer to, of course, uh, the cruel irony that the, the most popular movie. Um, well, a popular movie, maybe not financially, but amongst, amongst ourselves, right, uh, at the time of its release was the movie that it best, uh, that, that it's the, the knife that it's trying to turn uh, most resembles, which is Mad Max. Um, so, yeah, I think, but San Andreas, I don't really, I think that's, I, I think uh, conceptually, I understand how Patch is making that connection. I do think it's fair game, but I, I think that for me, the the joke that Tomorrowland is making. Well, I would is so disagree because particular. the joke in the background is about dystopian fiction, but Hugh Laurie's speech in the film seems to be very much about disaster fiction. Like the one name they're not name checking is Roland Emmerich in that speech for me. Um, and especially because the imagery in the movie that's, that's, the mo- the world is going to come to an end and they're showing disaster imagery that looks straight out of 2012 day after tomorrow i don't know how you i mean you're right that it's confronting dystopian fiction as well because earlier in the film for some reason the teacher and the movie is commenting that like talk about 1984 <laughs> And Aldous Huxley in school might be a bad idea. That is one of the most preposterous things I've ever seen in a film. Um, but I, I'm curious about – I, I want to steer it towards disaster films because I do think it makes that comment. And with uh, San Andreas coming out, uh, I'm, I'm curious because we indulge in this imagery both in fiction on the big screen and in real life uh, as, as evidence with these I mean, crazy photos. I, and we I, indulge I, from afar. When you bring up the like historical presence of disaster movies, it just kind of makes me think about the very original presence of cinema where people would go to be thrilled and scared of the train coming to the station. That's an apocryphal story, I know. But the idea or the same thing is when you get on a roller coaster and you're kind of confronting death in this very sanitized way, like it's this, uh, you know, confrontation of the death wish and mortality that happens within the confines of a movie theater that really when it's a good disaster movie. And I really like a lot of disaster movies. I feel like really does scratch that itch and kind of like it almost feels like it's giving you the courage to face the idea of the worst case scenario and even if the worst case scenario you know there's Tomorrowland gives us the idea that like by watching these movies we're anesthetizing ourselves and not bothering to fix anything but the worst case scenario can come beyond your control a lot of the time and you know the Cold War had great disaster movies because people really were not in control of their destinies there um, and I mean I, that was one of the things about Tomorrowland that really bugged me I just like I don't buy the idea that we're more pessimistic than we were in the 60s and I really don't buy the idea that like the culture of all of the things is what's causing it. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I think disaster movies have their place as a way for us to cope with 
realities we cannot control and uh, the idea that we're kind of putting our heads in the sand by watching them is bullshit. But why why don't they push us towards doing something? Like, they if, do. if day if after tomorrow... No, the, is... thing that, the thing about a successful disaster movie is it shows that even when the world is blowing up, the triumph of the human spirit and interpersonal relationships will bring a hero or some heroes through it. Like, there's not a lot of, like... I don't see nihilism in disaster movies. Like, maybe post-apocalyptic dystopian things, but it was what David was saying, where that's just... It's easier to distill the part of the human spirit that you want to talk about into a post-apocalypse movie than it is to build an entire sci-fi concept world that's going to allow you to twist on that one theme of human nature. But, like, I don't see, uh, like disaster movies is negative about humanity at all because usually it's about like you know the titanic well, is going down triumph. who do you who do you right. love and it's when not the, ro- like, the rock is going to save us all right that's why they're, they're about survival well, that's why i brought about, up dante's peak earlier because it's literally the volcano is like has a personal vendetta against uh, pierce brosnan which mm-hmm. like, i think makes that it ridiculous t- tomorrowland takes issue with the idea of all these dystopian movies not or post-apocalyptic movies i think they share this trait both having the pessimistic worldview that this is where we're heading and we need to accept it that they they start with the uh implicit assumption that everything that we now have is going to go to shit and we have to pick up the pieces later and i think part of what or a huge part of what tomorrowland rails against is that sense of pessimism well it's not just that and this is why disaster movies fit it's also about the complacency of, of survival like Oh, we can't fix this, so let's all build a giant boat and see if we can escape. Has you know, anybody the proven syndrome. that wrong thus far, though? Like, we've killed the planet in between the movies we're talking about and the movies we're getting now. Well, that's what's so weird, that it doesn't seem to... Mo- most movies, and this could be the problem with the, the, the time that you have to tell a, a film story, that you can't have heroes solve these natural problems or these environment environmental stories are all about how things have gone wrong and they will destroy us. And rarely are they about like fixing the environment or, or saving people. It's just about saving your own skin. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that, well, it's just more boring to watch unless you find a way to like do it, you know, well, like, uh, I don't know, like, Moneyball and The Social Network are both really interesting movies about information to me, but also, you know, are supposed to read as character dramas. If you could do something like that and not make it interstellar, like, I feel like there would there would be some sort of entertainment hmm. in fixing the world. Just just meditating on this idea, I was in an argument with someone, as I'm often found to, uh, to do, about... Apparently just if, arguing yeah, in bars always, lately. Yeah, always just... arguing in bars, um, about what, what's better, Armageddon or Deep Impact. Now, Deep Impact is, for me, the better movie. I just connect with it. It's more interesting, better characters, the plight, people actually die. I, there's a lot going on in that movie, and I and like it. And people do things to fix it. Um, kinda. They do. I guess they explode part of it, and it yeah. breaks up in a half. But I mean, also, it saves a lot of people. It does save a lot of people, uh, and a lot of other people die. But like Armageddon is the more una- is the more unabashed savior tale, right? Like we are going to go out to that meteor and blow it up and save the world. But in Armageddon, it's get. a bunch of roughnecks who do it, and in Deep Impact, it's like this Elijah Wood science. I mean, there are the roughnecks, but like. The yeah, fact it's the that blue Elijah collar would... man. Yeah, but the, the but the fact that it's like science that does some of the saving is what I remember from Deep Impact. Like, That's really you, interesting. Do you get any of uh, what well, that 
it's more interesting that the scientists save the day? Yeah, I think so because you, we're used to it being like Bruce Willis's of the world who saved the day, and in this in Deep Impact, it's like a kid with a telescope. But shouldn't it be the everyman who can save the day because that is no, that is everyman? No, that, that is, is what, the false reality as much as like disaster movies are like fun when really they would be horrifying it's like we can't there's not an everyman that's gonna stop global warming that's a multiple person problem the reality of the situation is more like sphere where there's a horrible monster that uh, we don't know what it is and it ends up being ourselves but it's just a movie about scientists talking about it like that's what a movie about really saving the world would have to look like do you, do you think that any of these disaster movies end up being about anything or they have – I mean are, are they just surface level? Here is the problem. Everybody run. Or did they tell us something about how we're dealing with society? Well, San Andreas come to mind? is – I mean I, I, you know, seen I don't it, want to so spoil you anything. Kind of, You're embargoed. It's about how all of your friends who moved to L.A. are, are uh, really fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's, finally. Uh, it's, it's a cautionary tale. About not moving. No, the movie unfortunately has nothing to do with people defecting from New York. I think you know. I think uh, the the it would be accurate to say that most of these movies, all movies are about something. Most of these movies are not overtly concerned with with engaging in anything beyond the spectacle at hand, which is of course its own significance. But uh, I, I, I not off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are some disaster movies that actively and maybe superficially engage with themes in a way that they want the audience even the people in the back of the class to connect to would we give the planet of the apes movies credit for that i i mean the the planet of the apes movies certainly either you know have that sort of yeah they do but i i I, um sure yes the short answer (laughs) the short answer is time traveling and they can actually save themselves but i don't see i i certainly I think that technically they are all in the same arena. I don't really tend to associate something like San Andreas with the, any of the Planet of the Apes movies, um, at least not experientially. Uh, I, I think I see San Andreas just purely in the Roland Emmerich vein of destruction porn. Um, and so wait, can, we, can we hone in on that for one second? Because like calling it destruction porn is what it is. We are showing up just to watch cities be destroyed by you know flowing lava or earthquakes and like do we gain anything from it is i i i don't really agree with this comment but does tomorrowland make a point like are we just showing up to watch our world being destroyed so that we're desensitized to when it is being destroyed out there you know like giant earthquakes happening in asia you know is anyone donating when they think it's just another thing i mean that's putting thoughts into the, the minds can of many I, but can i pose this another way yes, which I, here's please. another here's a thought experiment that i've been also having at horror film festivals and in bars is that you're a mad thought at scientist it's <laughs> not it's not foolish to actually have a plan for the zombie apocalypse because your zombie apocalypse plan is going to cover so many real world scenarios from like anarchy to you know outbreak of disease that if the only way you can engage with how you would deal with that situation is through zombie apocalypse, then, like, do it. But see, what Tomorrowland is arguing is is the opposite of that. It's saying don't have a zombie apocalypse plan. It's saying proactively plan for a better future. Think positively. Um, Right, but, like, so something like, but, like, I'm not going to ever live at the foot of a volcano, so I'm never going to get any knowledge from the volcano or dante's peak the other one was just called volcano right the one with yes. Bryce in la 
yeah, under uh, the Libre tar pits it is. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to learn anything necessarily about volcanoes. I don't. I mean, I already know where the San Andreas Fault is, so outside of that, I'm not sure what that movie's going so to be. Stay able away to from me. California. If the yeah. earthquake in San Andreas is so huge that you will feel it on the East Coast. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure. Whoa. I'll feel it. I believe Paul Giamatti has that line in the trailer. Yes. All I know so, is that if, be prepared. Uh, in Deep Impact, they come to where I am to avoid the wave that engulfs the West Coast. So I'm totally fine out here. That's that's what I learned from Deep Impact. You, you, you planted an idea in my mind, Dave, that World War Z might actually be the most like proactive disaster movie of recent years. Because at least... Just teaching us how to survive a zombie apocalypse? Yeah, just like we have to take steps. Well, but that's a metaphor for... Problem. We can't yeah. fix the Earth, but we can fix zombies who are basically like tight waves and and hurricanes well they could be all of that and like infectious disease but like that's that's the thought experiment that i would challenge against disaster movies is like allowing us to experience these things and see these things may be desensitizing but like you know nature tries to protect us by making us scared um maybe this is some sort of reverse thing where now you know if aliens swoop down and blow up the white house we're going to be like, yawn, seen it, get the Air Force and not. No, like, there's oh no way that's true. We had so many, many years of disaster movies before 9-11 happened. Then it happened for real and it still terrified everybody. Yeah, I think I think Katie's got a point. I, I think that you can see it in pretty much every uh, category of tragedy. I think, um, you know, no matter it, it, it's the same argument that violence in movies does not anesthetize mm. you to violence in the real world. I mean, I can see um, a million movies where people are being shot and then you hear one report of a school shooting somewhere and where in which there are only one or two victims and it is more horrifying exponentially no. so well, i will say, say. I, no here's the thing is that i being in colorado for 9-11 i experienced that event like i experienced a lot of disasters which is on a screen like sure but that didn't mean the, it didn't have an impact well i think i, I just stop in, and it, the image itself like out of context wouldn't have had an impact because i'm used to seeing like dinosaurs and lasers yeah but you know what's real like you're an adult you understand how to tell the difference between fiction and reality but okay so in that case why couldn't i contextualize a disaster movie in that same way by finding what's real in it i I will say this kind of the reverse of what david was saying um when i saw the purge anarchy uh, I was very on edge because something had happened recently. Maybe it was a shooting or maybe I was having memories of a shooting or something, which I'm prone to do as a sea quarter quell, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> uh, I was very on edge for it. And well, the purge is about class like, warfare. You know, and so like, that's something that's real. That's something that's happening. No, but let me make my point here that reality starts blurring in that way. Like I can be afraid of these sort of things because they're happening in the outside world. And when I leave, I'm thinking I'm more scared of the movie than I was of like reality. And I can tell myself, no, this is not going to – I'm not going to get shot when I walk outside. Like be calm. And this movie is just stirring you up. Do you think that it's possible that people – you know, see disasters across the globe, you know, tweeting about things and engaging them within photo essays when a volcano blows up in Chile. And th- just like the, the movies that they see don't allow them to engage with them in a correct manner, in a, in a realistic manner. They're- well, I think that people have a difficult time engaging with, I mean, it's sort of to what Dave was saying about 9-11. Um, I think he may have taken it a step further than I believe 
a rational person is capable of thinking. I think that he understood that 9-11 was real in a way that just because it was mediated by... Actually, he's not, I'm not truthing. Uh, I'm not truthing. <laughs> okay. But I do think that, you know, there is an element to... I think the, the biggest um, example of this in recent years for me was the 311 disaster in Japan, the, the earthquake and the ensuing tsunami and then okay. the ensuing... Uh, what was that? I thought 311 went on tour and that was a disaster. Yes, that was absolutely a disaster. The huge... Uh, but no, I, th- I think that that's something that is a profoundly important event in in recent human history, and the loss of life was catastrophic. And the ongoing event is is something that the whole world should be paying attention to, not just out of humanitarian concern, but also because uh, with our reliance on nuclear power, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the distance made it very easy for a lot of people in the Western world to tune out. And I think that that's something that appropriates. Right, right. Well, yeah, but I think that's something that that people that's not unique to us in America. I think it's true of all people in general that there is that that sense of distance. uh, I don't know. I do think that it it, Brad Bird is really aiming for the stars here and making a movie that gets you at or is aiming for like a guttural level that is separate from any particular incident that's just saying in general we need to be more positive we need to be looking for solutions we need to be thinking optimistically about our future i think all the messages are well and good but he does really to make his point throw all this stuff he throws sort of the baby out with the bathwater and saying like we can't have look how much good came from fury road all this this amazing portrait of um, feminism and, and humanism as a whole and and all these very positive things that we can all agree upon were uh or for the good of mankind that happened in this very um, dude, this terrible setting. Uh, and it used that setting as a, as a means to vault these ideas up as leverage. And I think that Bradford may have gone a little bit to the fundamentalist extreme with this one. Is it an objectivist movie? I haven't listened to the review. Uh, <laughs> I was Tune into I our review. started bringing that up, that idea, and I didn't really get into it in the uh, podcast. I do think it had, I don't think. It is explicitly objectivist, but I do think that its underpinnings are in a way that is. I feel like no one is talking about enough. Should but then I no not like Brad Bird cares. as much as I do? Is oh, he a should. crazy objectivist? No, he, think he's so. not. He's not. I, I wish that, again, I, 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 this is the same article that I cited. Uh, okay, look, I read David's article and he does a no, really you didn't. good job. Not, yes, oh, wait, did. did you get the, ma- you got the magazine? What? Did, no, no. Is not the full thing online? No. Okay, it's go, not ahead, online. go ahead. You, um, you had good points. Well, thank you. Whatever you read, I don't know what it was, but uh, uh, no, I, I wrestle with this. I am eager to think about it more in the future. I do think Tomorrowland complicates it, but no, I, I Brad Bird is not a crazy Randian objectivist. Um, He's objectively against disaster movies. I think yep. we could all yes. say if you like watching people being engulfed by magma. There might be something wrong. With well, you. I have a, I have a solution for him, which is that in both the post-apocalypse and the ideal future, there's a guy with a flamethrowing guitar everywhere I go. <laughs> That's true. The Doof Warrior. He has Indeed. a name. Just to wrap up here, um, are we concerned at all about the core spinning on a daily basis? Anyone? The core. The, the, core, the movie The, the movie core. The core? No, about the core spinning. But yes, the, the, the true life story that the core depicted uh no okay nope, i'm good just just checking until star wars comes out i'm trying not to worry about anything i can't control <laughs> <laughs> but then after that all bets are off after that there's a whole presidential election coming up apparently oh, you know although, the environment's screwed yeah ask people I, about the I think we may have run out of track here but i think that I, I i did want to sort of discuss when making these movies if there was something gauche or about uh so like you know 
an earthquake is a threat for us in America, especially for those of you in California, but it's a very real and present reality for the people in Nepal, for the people in Japan. Um, and of course, just to speak to that, the press tour for and the, the marketing campaign rather for San Andreas was uh, derailed when the earthquake struck Nepal. And I think when something's that much of a clear and present danger to be making... Was it derailed? I mean, I don't well, it was. They had to adjust, but I think that you know, if uh, not noticeably, um, you know, I, I am playing devil's advocate here because I don't think that we should not make any kind of art, um, you know, based on sort of real world fears. But it, it is interesting making these movies when uh, and making entertainment right. out of them when they're so tragic. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm with you. Like, we we can't stop people. We wouldn't want to if there's a crazy vision of a of a disastrous future. It's just when they're bad. A- when they're bad, we're like, <laughs> yeah. that's when it's just like, what? Are that's you when doing? it's destruction. Why do you have porn? to rub their face in it? Exactly. Rub their face in liquid magma. That's why Roland Emmerich's not making a Stonewall movie. You guys ran him out of destroying the oh world. Oh, my God. Hope you're proud oh, he's of not? No, he is. He's making oh, he a Stonewall making movie. Stonewall movie yeah. But that's not a disaster movie. Well, oh, it will wait. be. It's going to be oh, a $200 God. million dollar Stonewall movie where it actually becomes a stone wall <laughs> and it's 400 feet high and the gays have to have to scale it in order to claim their rights. We wouldn't want to see that. Uh, we're going to offend a lot of New Yorkers in this conversation. Eh. I'm, that's good. Somewhere, somewhere in there was. I feel the like end. we're offending a lot of non-New Yorkers by David constantly telling them to not live we'll where they live. Offend everyone. Good. Yeah. Good. Equal opportunity offensive. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We will not be having a review segment this week, but uh, David can be found uh, complaining about San Andreas somewhere on the internet, I'm sure. And uh, we'll figure out what we all have to make of Aloha at a later date, too. I think we'll talk about that at some point later on, but uh, we're just not getting it together to see it before this week's review. But anyway, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I am the senior writer at Esquire.com, and I am on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightinginthewarm.com, where we post all the episodes. You can tweet them. You can write comments that Dave can or cannot approve, apparently, as we've learned. <laughs> uh, mean people, maybe maybe don't even bother writing super ignorant, crazy-ass comments. Don't leave men's rights comments on our website. Yeah, men's not. rights may not have a place on fightinginthewarm.com, but everything else does. Fightinginthewarm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I am the editor, the associate film editor of uh, Time Out New York and the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich, and uh, a bunch of other places, a lot of Twitter. Uh, you can find all of us on another social media, social networking site uh, known as Facebook. Facebook. Fighting at the War Room on Facebook. Fighting oh, in Facebook. the War Room. Fighting in the War Room <laughs> on Facebook. At Facebook. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name DA7E. That's also my Twitter handle. I write for Keith.com, Forbes.com, and Latino-Review.com. I also do a podcast about Game of Thrones called Storm of Spoilers. It's been a rough season, guys, but Storm of Spoilers is your safe place for speculation and fun. Even if you're not watching the show, uh, we'll tell you when to tune back in if that's your bag. But, you know, all opinions are welcome, yeah, except for men's rights activists. And I'm Katie Rich. I've recently started listening to the Storm of Spoilers. I'm enjoying it immensely. Uh, you can also find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. 
Uh, on Twitter, you can also find the entire podcast at FITWR. Uh, we won't have a review episode to read your answers to this week's lightning round question, but you can still answer it. And uh, what was that lightning round question again? In honor of Aloha, what's a great pop music cue from a comedy? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back Aloha-ing with you next week. Tequila. Tequila.